Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, the Australian government announced a new submarine partnership rather than that $90 billion contract with the French. Australia will purchase eight US nuclear submarines as part of the AUKUS military alliance with the US and Britain. It's a huge strategic shift and has caused major diplomatic rifts. Uh, It's the technology itself, though, that we're going to explore this morning. Australia will be just the seventh country to have a nuclear sub capability and the federal government has said that this new arrangement does not signal the beginning of an Australian nuclear industry or extend um, um, to sort of involve domestic nuclear energy or weapons. And nevertheless, the long-standing anti-nuclear campaigner Dave Sweeney at the ACF has some concerns. Uh, Dave is one of the founders of the International Peace Prize winning group ICANN2, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And it's great to have you on the grapevine again. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Kaya. Good morning, Dylan. Really nice to have the opportunity. Yeah, great. And um, I, I think you know Australia has maintained this decades decades old moratorium on nuclear energy. Uh, are you satisfied with what the government has said that it's it's not the pointy end of a nuclear industry starting here? Look, um, the short answer is no. Like, if, what better vessel to bring something in under the radar than a submarine? Really, is our view. Um, we see it as a bit of a uh, a bit of an icebreaker um, in trying to crack a long-standing resistance to nuclear technology in the nuclear industry in Australia. And, Carl, you were seeing that already. Like, uh, the, the Prime Minister had hardly finished his press conference the other morning, that theatrical, triangulated presser on Thursday morning that we woke up to, and the Mineral Council of Australia is out saying, great news about nuclear subs, now we need nuclear power. Um, and there has been the standard um, uh, series of responses, the chorus of pro-nuclear voices saying, you know, this is a bold move and now we need to go further and take the sensible move in embracing nuclear power. So there's no question that this will embolden people that want to see Australia go down an increased military and civil nuclear path and it will lead to more calls and more pressure for this. So we're really concerned about this. In, in your introduction, you said this is a profound strategic shift and it is. It's a We went to bed on Wednesday night um, and then the country we woke up to on Thursday morning last week was different. We have put our hands up to join in a military nuclear alliance with two nuclear weapon states and see that as our future and our eternal uh, alliance. Um, There's a lot of people that have real concerns about that in Australia and, as you also mentioned, regionally. And there's also the environmental concerns about what this means of itself and what it might be a precursor to. And, of course, at the beginning of the deal we made with the French, we requested amendments to their original design, which were nuclear submarines to be diesel-powered. And and we had, uh, you know, members of the government criticising the likes of Tony Abbott for exploring nuclear subs option, the nuclear subs option back then. So, what what changed? I mean, is it the case that sort of pro nuclear advocates or or people who would like us to be more strongly aligned with the US just got in got in the the prime minister's ear? What what can we put the, this fundamental shift down to? 
That's a, a really interesting uh, question, um, and I think no, nothing's changed in the technology. The, it's bizarre that we've got this hundred billion dollar plus spend, um, and no one's prepared to say, Dylan, the name of the country that we're spending for, which is you know where everyone's talking strategic competition. No one's saying China. Mm. Um, the the change is probably a few things. Uh, the change is is partly uh, in the UK, which now is seeking to bolster its international credentials, exposure and linkages post-Brexit um, in a search for sort of uh, relevance and political power. Um, they are actively seeking to expand their sphere of influence and so they would see this as a bit of a trophy prize of an, of an agreement. Um, the big driver is, is the US because they have promised to sell us uh, nuclear subs into the future but effectively one of the things that we're giving them now is the aircraft carrier, the unthinkable aircraft carrier that is Australia because one of the things that's not nuclear so attracting less attention is enhanced cooperation. There's all this talk of stationing more US troops and forces, more US nuclear materials and war fighting materials, upgrading the Tyndall Air Force Base near Catherine in the Territory and a much uh, more of a sense of Australia being a forward staging post, a forward deployment post for increased US activity in the region. So I think America seeing that there is a fundamental fight between the two great powers, um, China and themselves, and seeing us as a place that means they're a lot closer in flying, sailing and striking distance. Um, so I think there have been key drivers here. Um, and I think uh, it's a real concern because like when we look at the responses to this, the, the stated rationale for this AUKUS pact is to increase security and confidence in, in, in the Indo-Pacific region. Well, in three days, it has done more to damage that than uh, many activities that have gone on in the decades before. So it is a real concern, and that's before we talk about escalating nuclear entanglements as well. And I wonder, Dave, with regards to other countries in our region, um, I mean, what's the sense that you have, say, around New Zealand, which has a long-standing um, ban, really, on, on nuclear submarines even entering their waters, and, and, and in Pacific nations, uh, where interestingly, you know, that it was it was French tests that that really galvanised opposition to, to nuclear in the in the Pacific back there in in the eighties, like. What, what's your sense of the response in the region? Uh, well, the response has been very, um, very concerned, sometimes uh, very strongly opposed, Kalia. Sometimes it's been concern and disappointment. Um, a lot of concern from Malaysia and from Indonesia, who have raised concerns about um, um, a regional nuclear arms race and increased uh, regional tension. Um, Deep sadness, actually, deep sadness and real anger across the Pacific, and you're absolutely right. Like, in the Pacific, because of being on the receiving end of um, of nuclear testing, French and American as well, um, and British nuclear testing all impacted the Pacific um, and, and sort of hardwired into a lot of Pacific 
DNA is is a sense of, of the Blue Pacific and nuclear free, and this has been really, really hit. There's been strong comments in recent days about this uh, from the Pacific Council of Churches and others, um, and I think the cachet, the, the brand damage for Brand Australia in the Pacific region from this decision has been and will be immense. Um, like we've been indifferent as a nation to the Pacific for a long time. We have taken no action on climate change for a long time, which is a profound concern and existential one for the Pacific. And, you know, that, now this decision, um, it is really calculated, uh, or it, if, if not calculated, then its unintended consequence will be to drive the Pacific away from engagement with Australia. New Zealand, you mentioned, they have a long-standing ban on nuclear weapons and nuclear powered and armed ships and vessels visiting their waters following the French murder of uh, Greenpeace activists and the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbour. Um, and uh, they have reaffirmed that policy stands and they have said that Australian nuclear-powered vessels would not be welcome in New Zealand waters. So look, that's, you know, probably our oldest military partner who's just, you know, on the other side of the ditch flagging pretty clearly that they're not happy with this. And it goes on, you know, there's been concerns raised through the ICANN connections and others. We've been in touch with civil society groups throughout Asia, like through the Philippines, Japan, Korea... All of those have expressed really deep concern. One of the other concerns about this too, Kai, is that like Japan and, and Korea, South Korea, both have domestic submarine fleets and the our uh, colleagues and compatriots in those countries are now really concerned that the Australian move is going to mean that hawks in their military, in their countries, are now knocking on the door at Washington saying we want nuclear subs too. So it becomes this, you know, this increasing uh, uh, acceptance and increasing adoption of nuclear technology be it for propulsion or explosion and, and it leads and fosters uncertainty, concern and a need to catch up which is, and that technological catch-up need only serves the big, uh, you know, uh, arms corporations. It doesn't serve uh, people's needs. Like, we're talking $100 billion plus in uh, to meet a threat. When you look at this, the situation in Australia with growing inequity, with yeah. no climate change, et cetera, et cetera, we've got to ask those bigger questions as well. We should remind listeners, we're speaking with Dave Sweeney. He's with the Australian Conservation Foundation and a very long-term nuclear-free campaigner. And that, that concern, I suppose, that this might serve to, to further propel a kind of military or militarisation of the region and the world and, and a muscling up with not just nuclear technology but nuclear weapons as well. I mean, Australia hasn't committed to signing the ICANN-led... Um, treaty uh, banning nuclear weapons. The ALP has said it would, but it's also given sort of um, qualified support for this recent AUKUS deal. And of course, this isn't planning to have nuclear weapons on Australian submarines, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's part of this broader uh, nuclear strategy that that the US is is leading and and looking to to really lead in the Indo-Pacific. Do you have any concerns about what the implications are from this and and whether Australia might, a future Labor government might be inclined to, to sign that treaty given what we've agreed to with the UK and the US? 
It's a, it's again a really thoughtful and interesting question. Um, it was good at least to see Labor when they did give conditional approval or conditional support for this AUKUS deal and the sub deal. They did put some uh, some conditions and some roadblocks and checks and balances in there. No domestic nuclear power, no nuclear weapons, and it must be compliant with uh, all parties' agreements and obligations under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. There's some stuff there to work with. It's not just a blank check. Um, but yeah, we are very concerned that there becomes this consistent erosion of position. And you know, there's no question if you look at the if you look at the column inches and the airwaves, with the exception of Grapevine and a few others that are a bit more measured and sensible, um, the chatter has been largely um, in in a lot of areas about let's go further. Why don't we develop our own? Uh, domestic nuclear capability, be that civil or military. So, yeah, we are concerned about that. You may raise the point about Australia's hostility or the Australian government as opposed to the Australian people's hostility to the treaty on the uh, for the prevention or the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which was which grew out of an Australian, largely grew out of an Australian initiative and became international humanitarian law uh, this January, Dylan. Um, and, yeah, we, we noted, obviously we've noted that the Prime Minister is very keen to try and uh, contain and confine and quarantine the nuclear weapons argument. We're saying that if the Prime Minister was serious about that, he would step now to reassure countries about that and say that um, that Australia is signing um, the, that, uh, that treaty and Australia is committed to a world without nuclear weapons. Because to do otherwise, to be actively soliciting by surprise without discussion, consent, any sort of uh, process to just emerge overnight with a, a stage-managed delivery of we are now going and joining into a military nuclear alliance. Um, of course, that is going to concern people. And, of course, nation-states are going to look at that and say their ambitions are to get nuclear weapons. So the best thing the Prime Minister could do is not to go down this path. The next best thing the Prime Minister could do, and he should do anyway, is to just sign this treaty and send a signal from Canberra to Beijing, to Jakarta, to the Pacific, that we are serious about this. And if he doesn't do that, then that leaves open the door for this Prime Minister or a future Prime Minister or the gradual process of normalisation and erosion to take us down that path. So we very much want to see a line in the sand on these weapons of mass destruction. And I wonder, uh, Dave, I mean, on that and and the signals that, that the government could send here alongside this AUKUS alliance is, would that also satisfy the questions around um, nuclear energy into the future and those sorts of questions because as we spoke about at the beginning, I mean, this has certainly emboldened people that are long-standing advocates for Australia to to uh, reverse its moratorium on, on a nuclear industry domestically. Do you think that, you know, is there anything that the government could do to signal that it really is just these subs and, and no further investment in the nuclear industry that they're looking at here? Yeah, there are things that they could do. And the weapons one, it's sign the treaty and make that loud and proud and clear before he brandishes a sword, the Prime Minister should pick up a pen. In relation to the civil nuclear industry, um, he should. Uh, there is There are currently prohibitions um, in two, at least two sets of federal le legislation that prohibit, prohibit 
uh, the, the civil nuclear industry in Australia. Now, the Prime Minister needs to reaffirm those. The Prime Minister needs to speak directly to those, name them, say that they're important, say that they are effectively legislatively sacrosanct and they won't be under challenge because they are under challenge. His government is out already. There's a whole bunch of people in his government that are already out, Matt Canavan and others, and they're saying, we've got nuclear subs, now we need nuclear power. He needs to shut them down, reaffirm the prohibition. Now, if he does those two things, that doesn't make a bad, expensive, risky, poorly strategically conceived and, and uh, uh, regionally damaging plan safe. But what it does is it does quarantine some of the spread of, as you say, this emboldened push uh, for ever more nuclearisation or nuclearisation by stealth. So the Prime Minister really needs to act on those. Labor needs to hold him to those um, because otherwise... We can't, quite frankly, have any confidence in an assurance from a Prime Minister who says at a press conference that I give you my word that we won't have nuclear weapons. At the same press conference, he rips up a $90 billion high-security contract between sovereign states. Um, like, you look at the actions, not the assurances, and the actions would lead people in this region to say Australia has increasing nuclear ambitions, including military ones, and we should catch up. And that is a really dangerous position. It's not what the Australian people want to see. It's not what we or the region need. And it's not inevitable. That's the important thing. There's a lot to play in this, and it's not inevitable. It's been delivered as a fait accompli. It is not. We have a role in this to push, to request, to demand and to, and to push for transparency and for answers to these whole range of questions about cost, timing, for what purpose, waste disposal, security and safety, there's precautions, so much. this whole range of issues. Yeah, there's so much, isn't there? And, and I think, you know, for many of us uh, locked down in our houses, uh, I mean, we can educate ourselves and if these issues are of concern to you, then there, there are places to go for more information and to contact your MPs and all those sorts of things. But, you know, the, the, the population is also exhausted and it's just a really um, amazing time to, to hear an announcement like this. So, um, Dave, it's been great to hear from you this morning and um, no doubt we're going to touch base with you again soon. I hope so. Thanks for the opportunity. And you're absolutely right. It's difficult days. On top of all the grief and the difficulty, the last thing we need now is a debate and a push and a money spent for increased nuclear. Yeah, it's massive. Thanks so much, Dave Sweeney, uh, Australian Conservation Foundation, uh, long-standing um, uh, voice there for uh, well, anti-nuclear voice. And I think, um, you know, we've spoken to him many times, I think most recently um, after ICANN received that um, piece It might prize. have been then, that's right. Yeah, it was just a massive, massive achievement. But, you know, these issues aren't going away anytime soon, are they? Lots of questions that, um, that Dave Sweeney outlined just at the end there that we're going to be asking for some time yet. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Yesterday, the path out of lockdown became clearer in Victoria with the Andrews government outlining its roadmap to reopening. It comes as the New South Wales government pushes ahead with its plan to ease restrictions once they hit the 70% double vaccination target. And this, of course, brings us closer to a, a new phase of the pandemic where we'll see whether our health system can cope with a likely surge in cases. Another big question for the medium to long term is what could happen to local economies and jobs once state and national borders reopen. 
open. Someone who does a lot of thinking about these issues is George Megalogenis. He's, of course, an author, columnist for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and very long-term Triple R subscriber. It's uh, great to have you back on the show, George. Let's start with the Victorian government's roadmap out of lockdown yesterday. What's your read on, on how they've planned for the months ahead? I think they're, um, they were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Once the, uh, once the virus broke out of New South Wales and kept crossing the border uh, to Victoria, we, we had to abandon that aggressive suppression strategy of ours, which uh, up until the middle of the year seemed to be the, uh, the national COVID um, uh, approach, minus New South Wales. But New South Wales has forced a reopening on us uh, by dint of the fact that the, the that we've got an outbreak that can't be controlled uh, through through lockdown. So we're trying to vaccinate our way to a position where the numbers stabilise and and we try to learn to live with the thing, which is uncharted territory. And it's a phase that's, that's crept up on us quickly. I think probably, as your listeners will be as well, it's just sort of shaking our heads about how quickly we moved from... Uh, you know, one case, two cases is a problem. Uh, everybody's got to lock down. We'll see you in two weeks to give you another week or so, maybe of extended lockdown, or we'll come out of lockdown to suddenly 500 a day, uh, with projections that this thing that, that this thing will get to a thousand, and the hospitals will be overrun. It's almost it's almost like we've we've, we've entered into another world uh, without any prior warning, and with government scrambling to. A, make this thing, uh, make it appear as if they're still in control of the thing. And I, I'm, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm sceptical, I'm just, I'm just anxious about this phase. Uh, this thing we're trying, which after 18 months we weren't even contemplating, uh, for the previous 18 months we weren't even contemplating, which is living with a thing, living with a number of deaths, uh, and, 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 um, and, and trying to get on with the rest of our lives uh, with a sort of have and have not situation with people with a vaccination versus those who don't have a vaccination. Yeah, look, uh, there's so many issues in there. And I mean, when I was listening to the Premier yesterday, George, I mean, I, I, I took note, I've got school aged children, I, I took note of, of the the school opening and the staggering and all of this kind of thinking that's gone into that. And, and then how do teachers respond in that situation if they've got kids that aren't at school, but they need to be in the classroom to teach older age groups or whatever it might be. We, 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 there's, a, there's a long way to go yet with, with how this roadmap is actually going to play out, isn't there, for, for individual people and businesses and our school system and the hospital system and the like. Yeah, absolutely. And if, and if you think about the, sort of the hierarchy of uh, needs for society, health is still number one. Uh, but the compromise at the moment is health plus education, because you notice there was much more, uh, much more concrete detail on, on which years what days, what dates uh, school, uh, kids will be going back to school. And I think this is something that the Victorian government was aware of last year, but certainly this year, lockdown number six, but essentially we're looking at wave three of the virus. This is the New South Wales wave of the virus, the, the Delta strain. Uh, the first thing they wanted to do, I think, uh, once they reopened, was to prioritise kids in schools, um, which and businesses, and this is a tricky thing for businesses because businesses wanted to be at the front of the queue, but clearly they're not front of the queue. Now, from a health perspective, uh, a, a lot of kids and a lot of parents in circulation is probably a greater danger than you know a couple of people um, socially distanced at a cafe. But 
we've obviously, for whatever reason, and I understand the reasoning, uh, we've put the kids ahead of um, we've put the kids ahead of small business. There's been a, a, a more kind of uh, closer alignment, I suppose, in, in the Victorian and New South Wales government's approaches for, uh, you know, the, the past few weeks, maybe going back a month or so, when the Andrews government essentially admitted that we weren't going for elimination, that we would need to live with the virus and, and start to gradually reopen. Um, New South Wales is still opening up with a, a few kind of greater freedoms, in, which includes, you know, going to, to people's homes and, and that sort of thing. You wrote in, in a recent column for the agent sitting Morning Herald about um, what might happen, I suppose, if they don't necessarily get that right and, and the broader economic hit the state might face if they kind of are then plunged into lockdown as a result of, of going with these broader freedoms rather than, than the more cautious approach. I wonder what you think about how that might evolve and, and what Victoria's approach might lead to in terms of our own economy and job market. Yeah, this is this is a really intriguing question and uh, and. I'll just touch on I'll just touch on the history here. Um, this is this is really the third epic shock um, that Australia has had at the pandemic. We had a couple of really big depressions just before Federation in the eighteen nineties. There was a monster depression which began with a land bust in Melbourne, and then there's the depression of the nineteen thirties. They're the two previous economic shocks on the scale which we're going through now. And it's obviously a health crisis, and sort of the economics is secondary in a way, but still, this thing has now been running for more than 18 months. So we, uh, we're certainly well past, um, in the timeline, well past the shock of, say, the early 90s recession. The early 90s recession was really a single-year episode, a 12-month episode, um, with, a, with a very, very long shadow cast after it. So that's just to put, that's just to put the thing in, in sort of historical context. Now, those previous crises, 1890s certainly began in Melbourne, and even the early 1990s recession, the epicentre was uh, sort of the Victorian manufacturing sector. Uh, usually you look at these things and you think, well, Melbourne is the boom and bust capital of Australia. Uh, they're obviously going to wear the bust. Sydney in the past hadn't, but this is the, this is the sort of the open question for me. If New South Wales doesn't get it right now, and uh, they will be put in a position that, that they've never been in before, where they're the lead city into the, into, where they're, they're the city that, that is associated with the economic shock. They're the city that's associated with the fallout. They're the city with the most to lose in the recovery because they fell so far in the, um, in the lockdown and in the recession. Now, there's a number of reasons why you would think that. Uh, Sydney, and we know this from, from 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 sort of the modern experience. Sydney is the city Australians are most likely to leave for other parts of Australia. Uh, you know, in any normal year, roughly half all the interstate migration are, uh, uh, are people uh, more than ha- roughly half the interstate migrants in Australia in any normal year are people leaving Sydney, refugees from their property market for places like Queensland and to a lesser extent, sort of Melbourne, Hobart, or regional New South Wales. So that was baked in before um, the pandemic. If the if the takeout from Sydney side is uh, at the other end of the pandemic, when we're sort of back to some sort of normal, um, let's say next year, is that uh, I've got to get the hell out of here. Uh, they will be looking at they will be looking at a very difficult situation where they'll be losing people, and the overseas migration program won't be back at full pelt to be able to compensate for the loss of people internally, and that's going to be really difficult for their for their position in the national economy and also to their, well, 
I hate to use the phrase, but for their self-esteem, because, you know, this city has been our largest city since about 1902. Uh, yes, we've got five out of the last seven prime ministers of health in New South Wales. The country's really been run out of out of Sydney for as long as any of us can remember, and we may be looking at one of those once in a hundred year situations where somebody has to take a step down and somebody else rises in their place. It doesn't necessarily mean Melbourne rises in its place. It may mean that we pass Sydney on the way down because they're falling faster than we're falling at the moment. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that because I I imagine that there's, uh, well, Melbourne has seen people leave, but I mean, you know, if you can paint a similar picture for Melbourne, uh, George, where where are we sitting with regards to retaining retaining our population here? Yeah, so look, when I uh, uh, I would encourage people to go look for the graphs because there's a couple of graphs that don't normally ask you to be nerds as listeners, but (laughs) have a look at one of the graphs which we've put. uh, It's still on the uh, sort of the Age and News Morning Herald website attached to that article, Uh, and it's the and it's the picture of net migration, like uh, both interstate and overseas, uh, for Victoria and New South Wales going back to 1860. And you'll see, and you'll see that the year just being 2020, uh, the single greatest fall, uh, the single greatest exodus out of Victoria on record was last year. But, but, and this is this is the sort of this is sort of the um, open question for me about 2021, because uh, most of the most of the agony has been in New South Wales this year, whereas it was our story, it was our turn last year. But the New South Wales number was even falling precipitously in 2020, and that's obviously because the borders are closed. And but one of the reasons, one of the reasons um, to leave a state is to leave it. So literally, um, you know, people could get an exemption to leave New South Wales to relocate in, in Queensland. They could get an exemption to leave Victoria to relocate in South Australia if they want, if they want, if expats wanted to go home or they wanted to go to WA. Uh, it was back harder to leave the country at last year, so there's, this 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 churn is already underway. But remember, bear in mind uh, what we're looking at is is an unusual situation with the international border closed. So the so the normal run of interstate migration is uh, exaggerated because there's the absence of overseas migrants coming the other way to offset the losses. So that's the, that's again, uh, without repeating myself, that's the open question for us. No one knows next year when when things go back to some sort of normal, whether the whether the thing settles down in a place like Victoria, because we've discussed this before. Prior to prior to the pandemic, Melbourne was the fastest growing city in the country, and in fact, when you when you um, drill down beneath the capital cities to the largest cities and towns, uh, it's Melbourne one. Sunshine Coast to Gold Coast three and Geelong four. So Geelong was the uh, Geelong was the fourth fastest growing city in Australia uh, leading up to the pandemic. So there's a fair bit of activity baked in the previous ten years. Does the pandemic completely reverse that, or do we return to some form of that sort of Melbourne growth story uh, from 2022 onwards? Uh, again, open question. Uh, uh, Best, worst case scenario for us is we continue to fall, 
But because Sydney's falling faster, we still have this unusual situation by the middle of the decade where we've got more people. Mm, it's an inter- interesting one. And also, you know, having the, the, the grand final outside um, Victoria for two years running and the NRL finals happening in Queensland as well, it's a pretty good advertisement for, for leaving um, those popular states as well when you see people enjoying you know, freedoms and, and going to the footy and, and surfing and swimming and all those sorts of things as well. But I, I should remind listeners too, we're speaking with George Megalogenis, author and columnist, um, all about um, federation really and, and pandemic politics and what the next few months might hold as, as Victoria, of course, has charted the roadmap out of lockdown. In terms of the politics of, of this, George, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of posturing between the states and the federal government and particularly the Labor states as well. How do you see that playing out into the future, given that Victoria is, you know, more or less um, kind of aligned with the New South Wales approach now, but, but other Labor states are kind of still very much um, pushing forward with kind of, you know, harsh um, you know, border closures to, to keep the virus at bay as much as possible. Yeah, so this is the... In terms of federation, the, the biggest dilemma, and it's a dilemma that was sort of taken out of our hands, well, we didn't have any choice um, when the virus started leaking again into um, sort of kept coming at us um, in the middle of the year in Victoria. But if you think about it, it's not just the two Labor states, it's, it's also so it's Queensland, Western Australia... Uh, South Australia, Tasmania, and one of the two territories, the mm. Northern Territory, the ACT is obviously in that sort of southeast um, sort of vector now. Now, we've got... It's very hard to explain to people who are not in lockdown, but in WA and in Queensland, they're not in lockdown at the moment. They have their freedom. So in Buzaglaris, Berejiklianism, uh, if that's a phrase, <laughs> they already have their freedoms. So what Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne are asking of the other states when they get to 70 and then 80% uh, clue jabs of the eligible uh, adult population, they're asking states that haven't had COVID for a long time and in fact, these are states that haven't had a single, haven't recorded a single death in over a year to COVID. Uh, they're asking them to to, uh, to move into a position of what? How do you describe it? They'd have to move into a form of lockdown, or they'd have to move into a form of restriction uh, to manage uh, a surge in the virus where they haven't had one. So that's the, that's impossible to imagine. It's impossible to imagine a more diabolical scenario for a federation at a time and a place when the federal government is clearly you know, playing favourites. Uh, you've got a prime minister who's temperamentally probably not suited to, to bringing people around the table and, you know, so Bob Hawke style and, uh, and then walking out the room with a consensus, which he's happy to announce in everybody else's name. It's quite a difficult time for us because we're trying to put the federation back together again after this sort of period of self-isolation of state from state and even capitals from the rest of their, uh, from the rest of their individual state um, to a position where you're supposed to supposedly have a, a free movement of people across borders again. But free movement of people means for 40% of the population that they get COVID, where they don't have COVID at the moment. And that 40% of the population, as I say, is Queensland, WA, Northern Territory, South Australia and Tasmania. In that belt, uh, two states... WA and Queensland with both Labor governments with that frontier mentality that the rest of the country owes them a living rather than the other way around. And Northern Territory, South Australia, Tasmania, most socially disadvantaged for different reasons. One's got a large Indigenous population, the other two are the, old, the two older states in the country in terms of the demography. Uh, we're, you know, entrenched disadvantage and very, very difficult um, 
sort of communities to manage, to manage if you do have an outbreak. So, look, it's, it's diabolical. It's not... Um, these are, they haven't been normal times for 18 months, uh, but the year ahead is not going to be normal either because of that, because of that tension between the COVID-free states and the states that are, uh, you know, trying to live with COVID, or already trying to live with COVID as we speak. Yeah, and, um, and it's really interesting, George, George, George Meclogenis is our guest this morning, uh, that you mentioned there that New South Wales and Victoria are asking that of, of uh, their state and territory counterparts rather than the Prime Minister asking it of them. And uh, I, I guess, you know, we're seeing writ large what's happening internationally, that Australia really does seem to be struggling in the diplomatic sense at the moment. And our Prime Minister, it doesn't seem to be a strength of his in any guise to, to bring people together as you just said but I wonder when you when you were speaking there about you know um well, could we take it to the GST? And I think this is quite an interesting situation is we heard the West Australian Premier week before last um, talk about the budget. They've got $5.6 billion budget surplus there in WA. Uh, the rest of the country isn't looking at budget surpluses, that's for sure. Uh, and yet Western Australia did negotiate that deal with, with Scott Morrison when he was Treasurer to get, I think it is... a. a a higher floor in the amount per in the dollar that that WA would get. I think it's seventy cents in the dollar. So they will be getting more GST while posting this budget surplus. While other states are uh, looking at really difficult economic times. What does this say about our federation in the sense of how we we redistribute wealth and GST revenue in this in this specific yeah, instance? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, you might have heard me just have a slight chuckle there. So the way that GST is distributed, it's distributed um, based on the formula which the Commonwealth Grants Commission, the Commonwealth Grants Commission, I don't know that they call themselves that anymore, but the distribution is supposed to be at arm's length from politicians uh, by experts. And it's based on, and it's unfortunately it's based on uh, the recent past. So when when WA got its, um, got its reduction in GST, uh, it got its reduction in GST based on the sort of the last few years of the, the previous phase of their mining boom. But the announcement uh, went into a period when their economy went backwards. So, so, uh, so you can imagine, imagine the way boom and bus works uh, at a state level. They have a, they have a couple of really good years uh, and they're sort of you know, um, growing faster than any other state. The, the bureaucrats say, well, but you shouldn't be getting you shouldn't be getting cross subsidy from the other states in terms of your GST allocation. So we'll trim you back. And I think they went down to as low as forty cents in the dollar at one point. But that because of the lags in these things, because uh, it takes a while to get these formulas um, uh, toted up, uh, the announcement came just as their economy had turned uh, had turned south. And of course they went nuts. Now of course. <laughs> They've negotiated a step up in their GST uh, based on that prior history. And that leads up, and of course, remember, this is also leading up to the 2009 election when, I mean, you mentioned Morrison prior to that had been treasurer when this, um, when this negotiation was uh, uh, commenced. And Morrison, when he became prime minister, obviously wasn't going to dishonour that deal because he needs WA to, uh, to keep his government in the majority. So lo and behold, here we are, here we are today in the second half of 2021 with WA as a COVID-free state, WA is like, technically a full employment state. In fact, WA is probably... Home the of the grand final. 
It's got the grand final, but it's the last state that's adding jobs uh, month on month. Every other state, because, you know, lockdown and some of the echoes from those lockdowns in the COVID-free state, even Queensland, we've seen a lot of people being laid off or reduced or their working hours reduced to zero. So WA is now sitting, sitting in the equivalent position it was about four or five years ago when they had their GST cut, but it's now receiving a distribution based on uh, the recent past when uh, the weakest state. So, look, it does your head in. <laughs> sort of stuff. It's it interesting. Really can, it really can do your head in. But, you know, each Premier, each Premier will want, will want you to forget uh, the circumstances of their previous uh, windfall. And I think uh, Mark McGowan will be pretending that um, this, this, this higher allocation to them is, um, is a square off for the rip-off of a couple of years earlier. But I think if you draw the line through the last five years, WA has probably been the strongest state in three of those five. Do you think that the National Cabinet um, kind of process makes it any easier to thrash out some of these differences and, and I guess, complaints some of the states might have about, about these things? Yeah, look, I'll try and be glass half full on this. Uh, Andrew Barr, the, um, the ACT chief minister, made this point a couple of weeks ago. And he's, he's if, you, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to watch which of the... Uh, which of the leaders in the National Cabinet, so the nine and obviously beginning with the Prime Minister, he's probably the most level-headed of them and he's the one who probably is the least... I mean, he's political like all of them, but uh, uh, most of the things that come out of his mouth make, make intuitive sense because he doesn't seem to have too many dogs in, in any of the races, you know, between New South Wales and Victoria, between Canberra and, um, between Canberra and Melbourne, for example. So the point he's made is that, and it's sort of, it's probably the, the thing that would, would leave you slightly optimistic for the long run, is that, is that bad things get stopped by the National Cabinet and some good things happen out of the National Cabinet. So without the National Cabinet, last year, uh, Scott Morrison wouldn't have, wouldn't have uh, gone to that to that national lockdown as quickly as he wanted to. Remember, last year Scott Morrison wanted to keep the schools open, and of course the way the virus was travelling around the world at that point, it, if we'd left the doors open even for another week, and I know Brendan Murphy sort of made this point, we almost we almost left it too late. But if we left it another week, uh, if Scott Morrison had got to go to the football, and you know everyone's kids got to complete that that school term, uh, the virus would have got out of hand and we wouldn't have been able to pull it back in. So the National Cabinet, in that sort of first instance, was able to, was able to save the country. This time around, of course, there's some, there's, some, there's some things that could have happened in National Cabinet that didn't. Uh, obviously, the premiers and the chief ministers weren't able to, to, to bend Scott Morrison's arm uh, far enough for him to, to put cash on the table to start building, but for purpose-built hotel quarantine. And the vaccine rollout, obviously, um, which is probably the single greatest sort of policy debacle outside the Vietnam War for the last mm. 50 years. Now, the vaccine rollout uh, would have been even worse. We would have been in a much worse situation now if the states hadn't chipped in to, to begin to run their own um, mass vaccination clinics earlier in the year. So, again, when you weigh this thing up, if there hadn't been a national cabinet, I think it, things would have been awful last year. Things are not good at the moment, uh, but I think things could be a lot worse if we didn't have that um, if we didn't have that structure.
And I think, um, I mean, one person that's not part of the National Cabinet is the Leader of the Opposition, Anthony Albanese. And I think that when you know, we are heading to a federal election in the next um, short period of time, six months or so probably, uh, I mean, how much do you think the, the Prime Minister is now setting up for that? And I guess, you know, what, what do you see uh, the situation for the Labor opposition is is now, um, George, going into what will be an election period? Well, look, many argue we're already in it. Yeah, this is interesting. So last year, if, um, just imagine if Morrison had, had co-opted Albanese last year and basically bound him to the National Cabinet. It would be very difficult for Albanese. So I think Albanese is better off having been out of it. He wanted to be in last year, but he's better off being out of it because he can... He can he can run. He's not as efficient as Abbott was in terms of his critique, but he does have a very very persuasive two line critique of Scott Morrison and his government, and that's that the two jobs they 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 had they failed at, which is hotel school, hotel quarantine, and the vaccination rollout. So the critique is there, but the alternative vision is not. And I think um, you know we're used to in our sort of federal history, um, having Labor oppositions inspire the country to change sides. Uh, the other side of that equation is we're also used to conservative oppositions tearing down Labor governments and, and offering a return to sort of normality. I'm not trying to inspire you anymore, just trying to calm things down. So Albanese, Albanese is coming at Morrison from, at the moment, from a sort of classic oppositionist position, which is he's sort of stayed out of the way last year and has gone really hard this year on the two things that Morrison has clearly um, uh, not done well with, which is uh, quarantine and vaccination. But the alternate vision, what is the alternate vision? Uh, we're supposed to wait until the campaign itself to hear that. Um, that's, that's the strategy that I have embarked on. Now, the interesting question for me is how this uh, federal election campaign is conducted in the context of, you know, uh, COVID tension between states. Yeah. So Morrison's not going to be able to move freely between states. And in WA and Queensland, where you've got Labor premiers and very strong Labor governments, and in WA you've got a premier, you know, whose primary vote was just under 90% okay. at the last election in his own seat. Uh, and you've got, and it's interesting with McGowan, McGowan's the most interesting, uh, uh, Andrews was the second most interesting, McGowan's the most interesting premier in this equation during the federal election. He doesn't mind muscling up to Morrison. And Morrison, who has sort of, you know, fashioned this sort of knockabout blokey, but also religious sort of, you know, uh, image for himself, unusual dichotomy as a human being. He's a sharky <laughs> fan and he's also... <laughs> Never seen a book um, better myself, George. <laughs> yeah. McGowan is quite happy to, 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 to muscle up to him. So in WA, where the coalition is very vulnerable, their polling is, 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 is really bad from what I can understand at the moment. And it's not just, you know, the most marginal that might move across to Labor in, uh, in, in um, Swan, in Perth, uh, you know, all the way out to Christian Porter's seat. Well, they've just lost a, mid- a minister. Yeah. yeah, well, he's on the back bench and I think he wants to, he wants to recontest. It's very difficult can be very difficult if you make a referendum on him at the next yeah. election with McGowan, with McGowan <laughs> cherry-picking from time to time. So, yeah, just uh, without sort of belabouring this point, it's difficult for Morrison to turn up in either Queensland or WA uh, without having 
some noise, some static from the Premier. Because the Premiers will still be able to call their daily press conferences. But they'll not be able to drown him out in the federal election campaign. We've never been in this situation before where a where the Premier can, can hog a microphone in the, in the federal election <laughs> No, it's, it's going to be intriguing in so many ways, um, for yeah. sure. And, and I suppose, you know, lastly, think, speaking of, of WA, who are you supporting on Saturday night, George? isn't it? Um, look, some of my best friends are Melbourne supporters. I'm always a Melbourne supporter. Uh, I do like the doggies. I like the way the doggies play. But as a Tiger fan, it's tricky. So if the doggies win one, it means we win one next year. Like, you know, they won 2016, we won 2017. Oh, that's the logic. I, right. I see. I'm going doggies. Yeah. No, no, but uh, yeah, look, I think the doggies, I, I, I would sort of tip the doggies, but my heart says the demons, I, you don't want to be going 57 years without a finish. <laughs> yeah, it's not good for anyone. Can you imagine the kids and the grandkids, because as a Richmond supporter, we, we lived through this. We were, what, 37 years uh, between premierships in 1980 and 2017, but I had them as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, you could grow up. You could grow up and, uh, and retire before you'd seen a premiership as a Melbourne supporter. So I think the heart says they should have one. Where, where, where do you think the, the WA crowd's going to go? I don't know. Uh, there, are no, look, there are no ski fields in WA, so there are no uh, Melbourne <laughs> supporters who sort of accidentally found themselves in that board, you know, on that side of the lockdown. So... <laughs> It's and I'm not sure. Good analysis. You'd have to cross, have to cross the Yarra <laughs> and then the Nullarbor uh, to get from, uh, you know, the West Perth. So I'm not sure where either, where either team would have a, a fan base out there. Yeah. Look at the Collingwood and Richmond. You could, you could, you could, you could, you could almost feel the expat noise um, in the stadium. And I when Richmond played Essendon uh, earlier in the year in the Dreamtime game, that that. That stadium really rocked. That was mm, quite a it uh, did, yeah. awesome, awesome game. This will, this, this will be. I think it'll be. There'll be greater atmosphere. Put it this way, uh, in Perth than there was in, at the Gabba last year, and the Gabba was uh, quite a quite an interesting event. It was quite, but disassociated. Yeah. Way to, to follow your team, though. Uh, yeah, it's a night game, so you've spent. A few extra hours doing nothing, waiting for the game to start. And, Absolutely, um, it's a weird and you experience. You could go anywhere afterwards to celebrate. You're locked in the house. True, and at least we won't get too much drone footage of people at the beach. So that'll be that'll be good having that it night. at night. Mm. <laughs> and the stadium does does look great at night as well. It's um kept you for a while, George. Thanks so much. It's always great to have you on the show, and um, we best let you go and, and subscribe to Triple R during Radiothon. Uh, hope to chat to you again sometime soon. Excellent. Thanks again. Thanks, George. Thanks, George Megalogenis there, author, journalist, columnist with the Asian Sydney Morning Herald, talking all about a bunch of issues related to the Victorian roadmap that was announced and pandemic politics going forward and, of course, the footy as well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. These days we hear a lot about climate risk for business and for some regional parts of Australia when a handful of businesses can sometimes be the centre of a community, the impact 
of climate on business viability can really risk the future of whole towns. And with the stakes this high, um, it's really interesting to then see a new report released this month by Farmers for Climate Action. Uh, And it certainly caught our notice here because the group, which represents 6,000 farmers across Australia, asked EY to model how Australia's agricultural sector could achieve net zero emissions. And the modelling indicates not only could Australia's agricultural sector cut emissions significantly, but could achieve net zero by 2040, uh, which is in line with what the Paris Agreement sets out. And Alastair Tullock is a winemaker in New South Wales's Hunter Valley and a member of Farmers for Climate Action. And it's really great to have you with us, Alastair. Good morning. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And um, it has to be said, the optimism in this EY study is in contrast to the impression we sometimes get or often get from, say, the National Party, uh, that net zero is a risk to regional businesses and towns and agriculture. Why is there such a difference in views with what is shown to be, you know, possible and potential in this EY study versus the kind of narrative that we otherwise hear politically? Uh, Well, I'm not a politician, so I can't tell you how it looks from their end, but I can certainly say that uh, on-farm we can see real solutions to the issues that that we face and, and, you know, farmers living on the land really do see the effects of climate change firsthand and I think that really leads to the reason why the industry's um, keen to get behind uh, practical solutions and and real solutions uh, rather than, you know, getting bogged down in the... um, you know, the, the naysay, I guess, that can come out of the uh, political sphere sometimes. And so what does the report suggest is needed for the agricultural sector to achieve net zero by 2040? Uh, I mean, a lot of the, the report itself uh, focuses on land use, which I think is really important. Um, you know, out in Australian agriculture, there's, um, you know, we are custodians of a huge proportion of Australia's land, and by um, you know sequestering carbon into that land and uh, using it to restore uh, the, the native um, our native forests and uh, our native wildlife, whilst also um, you know helping to contribute to net zero, um, there's a huge potential there uh, that farmers can unlock. And I mean, what what does that potential centre around, um, Alistair? Well, uh, I can tell you from our farm here, uh, we have uh, about 10 hectares of vineyard on about 20 hectares of property. And so there's parts of the farm which aren't necessarily used for the production of grapes themselves uh, that aren't, you know, uh, maybe it's the soil that they're on or maybe it's just impractical in terms of the field size to to getting tractors in and out of the area, uh, as well as the area which exists directly underneath the grapevines. So we have dedicated biodiverse areas on what we'd call marginal parts of our farm. Uh, That's areas that we own that aren't necessarily making us any income. And we also grow crops directly underneath the grapevine, and all of that sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. Um, Us as a carbon-neutral business, that's really important, but it also shows how uh, there's potential for the wider industry to adopt those kind of practices to, um, you know, sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And, uh, I mean, obviously you're in the, the sort of grapes and, and wine business. Does the report suggest that it's in any way kind of, I don't know, more feasible or easier for certain types of, of agricultural sectors to, to transition and sort of, you know, speed, speed and beef things up, I suppose, towards net zero than others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the report does uh, say that there will be 
varying levels of adoptability depending on uh, farm-to-farm basis. And a big part of that uh, report does say, you know, it does come down to the individual farmers to make the decision on how they use their land. It's not, uh, this report doesn't try and, you know, lock land up and say farmers have to uh, dedicate a certain number of hectares. It's really saying that under this plan, uh, it gives farmers the option to use that marginal area of their property. Um, and uh, that, I think, is a, a really important differentiation, whereas if, you're, if your farm uh, does have these large marginal areas uh, that, that can be used productively uh, in terms of, you know, helping us towards net zero in the climate, um, you know, it isn't about trying to say every farm needs to be a part of it, but the area of farm in Australia that could be used in this way is huge and could make a massive difference. And for you and your business, uh, Alistair, what... what um, when did you sort of decide to become, you know, carbon neutral? I think you, you call your your um, uh, um, farm. Like, when did it come with a decision that you had to, to make? And I guess that the reason why I asked it is because are these individual decisions that farmers themselves need to make in order to to make this net zero by twenty fifty possible uh, twenty forty possible? Yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I've seen in the wine industry and, and grape growing across my life like quite a big shift in the maturity uh, and the ripening of grapevines on the vine and how vines react to the climate because it is very, very specific. Um, basically, we're now picking grapes uh, for different varieties between two weeks and a full month earlier than we used to. Um, and that is true not just in the Hunter Valley, but across Australia and the whole world. So um, when we had this run uh, in you know, 2016, 17, 18, 19, uh, into the black summer of 2020, um, you know, it just became more and more obvious that what we were seeing uh, was unprecedented in terms of extreme weather, uh, extreme drought um, in the Hunter Valley. And so in 2018, we made the decision that we wanted to become uh, carbon neutral and we were certified carbon neutral by, um, it was March 2019. So um, that includes uh, the business side of things as well. So the, the, the operation for not just growing grapes, but making wine. So we've you know, heavily invested in um, solar power and alternate energy. Um, and across our whole business, um, looked at how we can um, you know, be net zero uh, in our own right. Uh, and how that, that did involve um, you know, using our land as well to sequester carbon. And that was the, the first kind of steps. Uh, it, was, it was the result from extreme weather that led us on to um, t- going down this path. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I mean, the area that you're based in has been, you know, the focus of, of um, national conversation and debate at times. Your local MP is, is Joel Fitzgibbon, who's announced that he's, he's leaving the Labor Party. And, you know, he's been very open uh, advocating for a kind of less ambitious um, climate change policy within the ALP. From where you sit and the conversations you have with people in your area and other people involved in the agricultural sector, I mean, what's the appetite? What kind of appetite is there for, um, for a, a more ambitious transition to clean energy and, and I guess that the future job prospects of, for people as well who are employed in, in, in coal mining and the like? Well, I could speak from my experience in the Hunter Valley wine industry. Everyone's extremely concerned about climate change um, and certainly within the, the, 
particularly the the newer, younger demographic of um, grape growers coming through. Uh, it's not just a, a piece of their um, business and a piece of their grape growing. It's for them like a really fundamentally important part of, of how they grow grapes and, um, you know, a, a key part of the, what they do. Um, as far as uh, the, the political situation goes, I mean, I've had Joel Fitzgibbon here on on the farm. Uh, he's had a look at our, our carbon neutral business, and I, I know that he um, he's moving on. Uh, and and we'll have to see who our local member is after that. Um, I, I really can't speak about what politicians do. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, but I'm interested. Um, you know, at the community level, like I mean, I think we can talk separately from politics here um, around embracing new industry because the hunter is not only being spoken about by or the experience of that part of the world. You're talking about going carbon neutral on your on your your farm, about the potential for other farms as well, but. Also, we're seeing that happen in the industrial precincts. Is there conversation between, say, the agricultural sector and the kind of more industrial parts of, of the hunter about how this can, you know, that your community can, can move as, as one? Well, I mean, we, we speak with uh, our suppliers, our, our contractors about their um, input on and their um, emissions. Uh, it it, it in our way of being um, carbon neutral, when we look up and down our supply chain, we have to make sure we're not bringing things onto our farm which, which have a carbon um, footprint. And that makes a big difference in how we speak to you know, our network and, and our, um, you know, within our supply chain. Uh, when it comes to the whole uh, region, obviously um, having... A, a very strong agricultural industry on the doorstep of um, the what is a, a gigantic coal industry. Uh, there's obviously tension, um, and you know there's there's trade-offs. But um, you know, from from my point of view, uh, what I've seen is just uh, more and more progress um, leading down the line of saying, well, the end result is going to have to be net zero from both sides. Um, the agricultural industry can't just look over the fence at mining and say it's there. this is a problem from uh, you know, coal mining because the agricultural industry also is a source of emissions. So we need to deal with our own farms, uh, deal with our own carbon footprint, and then um, we have to try and make sure that the government follows up and enforces uh, and pushes the same kind of change in other industries as well. Yeah, and we have the, the big climate negotiations coming up in Glasgow. It'll be really interesting to see what happens there. But um, with regards to the EY study that Farmers for Climate Action commissioned, uh, what are you hoping will stem from that? Well, I'm hoping that we see ambitious goals. I hope that we can see the government embracing the roadmaps that um, Farmers for Climate Action has, has laid out. And this... Uh, plan inherently has uh, a lot of benefits that can be reaped by farmers who, you know, we've seen over the last five years, farmers do it tough um, through drought, uh, through extreme rain and through what is now a pretty big mouse plague in New South Wales. Um, if they could find another source of revenue on their farm, uh, a passive source of revenue through, which is outlined in this roadmap, then um, there's a lot for them to gain. And I think that would be a hugely valuable thing to take away from 
uh, from the upcoming conference. Thanks, Alistair, for being with us uh, on The Grapevine. Great to have a winemaker on The Grapevine. Uh, first one ever. So, yep, made history this morning. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Thanks. 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 Alistair Tullick, uh, winemaker in New South Wales' Hunter Valley and a member of Farmers for Climate Action. And we, we didn't go too much into the detail, but there's a really interesting study that commissioned through EY, Ernst & Young, as it was called, uh, looking at the potential for net zero emissions for the agricultural sector, and they reckon it can be achieved by 2040. So an optimistic story there. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.